Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Dr. Suzanne Gilberg is not only board certified in OB-GYN and integrative medicine, but she's also a self-professed hardcore science nerd with a deep respect for the holistic approach to health and life. She boasts degrees from USC School of Medicine and California College of Ayurveda, and she also completed her residency at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, which is where I did my internship too. She credits herself for being able to integrate ancient healing traditions into her practice, and that has allowed her to go deeper into the study of health and healing. As more natural solutions, medicines, and technologies emerge in the global marketplace, Dr. Suzanne finds herself referring back to Ayurveda, which she calls the original lifestyle medicine. Listen in how this incredible doctor chooses herself in mind, body, and spirit. Dr. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Juliana. You advocate very strongly for integrative women's health. Can you explain what that means to you? And you talk about being on a mission. Can you describe what that is? Oh, yeah. I mean, that could take the whole podcast, but I'm not going to do that to you. So, you know, I'm, I'm technically, I am board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. So I am fully grounded in conventional Western um, medicine, um, but I'm also board certified in integrative and holistic medicine. So what that means, and, and I have a degree in Ayurveda in the ancient medical system of India. So I'm really, I have a much a wider and deeper toolkit, I think. And that's what I'm, I'm very interested in integrating what's conventional Western quote modern, but with a grounding of a much bigger perspective on sort of the human history of how we heal ourselves and all of the ways. So mind, body, spirit, plant-based. Um, but I'm a surgeon, you know, and I work in a hospital. And I feel like it's silly to be orthodox about anything. We have evolved as, as healers uh, over the millennia that we've been on the planet. Um, I feel very strongly about how we interact with the planet and ourselves and nature. And I'm also willing and able to use the tools that have been developed you know, more recently, but with a critical eye to customizing and looking at the unique individual in front of me. So that's what I mean by all of that. I love that so much. I just, the more you have in your armamentarium, my favorite word, the better. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about growing older gracefully. What does that look like to you? Well, I mean, it looks like a lot of different things. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's pretty challenging. You know, I'm uh, 56 and I, I'm in good shape. I take care of myself, but you know, I have aches and pains that I didn't have even two years ago, and my body doesn't work in the same way. One of the things that I have to do is give myself some grace and be honest about what I'm capable of doing now. I mean, I'm very strong and, and staying strong, as you know, is really important for optimizing our aging and for aging gracefully, I think. But some of that also has to do with our own humility. Um, I love, I love the My Evolving Body campaign that, that, um, that Tenna has because it really speaks to that. It's really about accepting yourself, loving yourself. And that includes, you know, being more open to talking about how things change. And then you can find solutions for those things. I mean, I'm not saying you should just sit there and get creaky, but having some acceptance uh, around that 
just makes it a lot, a lot more comfortable and a lot more enjoyable. I think, you know, I'll speak for myself. Um, I, I, you do, I did a lot of pushing, striving, denying my needs to get where I am. And I think that our culture sort of expects that of us, but at a certain point it's, it just doesn't work anymore. And I think listening to the signals that my, my body gives me and my mind gives me and my spirit gives me serves me and, and the people that I serve a lot better. Mind, body, spirit. So what do you, how do you recommend or how do you guide your patients? I, I mean, you know, I think I start with the, the broad definitions or the, the broader sort of perspective that I hold. And I, I do think as a practitioner and as a physician specifically, you know, being really honest about that and just being authentic about my own vulnerability gives people permission and space to, to discuss, uh, to discuss things in general. So that's sort of the more generic thing. But I, I do think, um, the specific things that I recommend are making sure that people understand what their options are, what the options what options are data driven and what options are not. And I don't use data for everything, by the way. And that includes whether I'm, you know, discussing hormone therapy or plant-based medicine, lifestyle stuff, you know, rest is key. I think giving yourself a break is key. I'll, I'll give you an example. So I'm a person, I'm a fitness person, right? Like I've been working out regularly since I was in my twenties. I was not an athlete. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but I started working out regularly in my twenties after I graduated college or toward the end of college. Well, I can't work out seven days a week anymore. Like I need to give myself rest or I'm not going to recover and I'm going to actually injure myself. So just that kind of specific stuff, obviously what I put in my body is something that I, I talk about with patients and what they put in their body. And that includes everything that it's not just food. It's the kind of people you're around, the kind of media you're consuming, um, the humans in your life, nature, you know, we could get deep on this stuff, but, but there's, there's the obvious common sense aspects to this. Um, it's just nurturing yourself, but there's also tons of evidence to support these kinds of notions. So it's officially World Continence Week and something <laughs> we haven't talked about that here on the show. And especially specifically for women, like what do women need to know about incontinence? It's something that a lot of us are, you know, we're embarrassed about or people don't want to you know, bring it up to their physicians. So what do women need to know about incontinence? Well, I mean, first of all, they need to know about incontinence. I think this is one of those important areas of shame and stigma that need to be destigmatized. So this conversation is extremely important. You know, it turns out that one in three women in North America are going to have some episode of urinary incontinence at some point in their life. It's, it's most obvious for people who, um, have birth, who give birth. Um, and I think it becomes a little more obvious again around menopause and perimenopause, but it will typically take women six to eight years before they actually bring it up and try to get help with a doctor. So that's an enormous number of people over a long period of time who aren't getting help because they're embarrassed, ashamed, or think that there's nothing they can do. And I think the other thing that we need to talk about is, like, how do we deal with it? I mean, there are lifestyle fixes. There are looking at, you know, patterns of eating, drinking, sleeping, all that stuff. There are, you know, like we talked about what we're putting in the body. There are definitely some people have, you know, dietary triggers uh, that will increase, uh, especially what we call urge incontinence. But the stress incontinence, so like cough, laugh, sneeze, that kind of thing, which is the most common, um, 
that really has to do with pelvic floor support. And there are things that we can do to help assist strengthening that pelvic floor, everything from physical therapy to certain exercises. There are non-invasive procedures. I do one in the office called the Amcella chair. There's surgery for somebody who has really the most extreme version. But while you're leaking, you need to use a product. Like people will put towels in their paper towels, um, just sort of deny it's happening and change their clothes. A lot of times they're reaching for period products because that's what we're most comfortable with. And I think we're less embarrassed about going down that aisle. But, you know, the reality is that that is actually not healthy or safe. The, the, the genital skin is very delicate. You want to keep the um, highly acidic urine away from the skin to decrease discomfort, damage, infections. Um, and that's why understanding the difference between incontinence products like those that Tenna make uh, where they wick the moisture away and period products, which, which don't do that in the same way because period blood is completely different. It's just like basic stuff. You know, I could get really granular on it, but I think if you don't know there's a solution, you're not going to ask a question. And frankly, if your practitioner is not giving you the time or space to ask these questions, then you're just going to go away and kind of figure it out yourself, which is not always the best way to do it. So I mean, incontinence is not something people want to talk about, but here we are talking about it. We got to do it. It's okay. We can talk about stuff that's uncomfortable. Nothing bad's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I think just just accepting that is really the first step because there are so many things like that, especially yeah. for women that are hard to talk about. And like, you don't, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to share something so personal right now. I've never shared this with anyone in the world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even talk to my mom when I got my period. And this was like when yeah. I was oh. my mom, you know? And so I remember like having to hold, hide that in. It was so much shame. It was so embarrassing. And it's, you know, and now the idea that people don't even want to talk to their physicians because of that, I think it's really great that we raise some awareness here. So, so thank you for talking about it. Yeah. I'd love to go also to, you know, I work with most of my clients. I would say probably most of my clients are perimenopausal, either premenopausal, during, after, all of that like section of time where like things change so dramatically. And um, you're writing a book called, or you've written a book called Menopause Bootcamp, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And you talk about treating the woman as a whole person. Like you talk about it as with your practice holistically and, you know, rather than just treating symptoms. Can you share a bit about how you help your patients during this transition? Well, I mean, it's really evolved over time, and I'm so glad you're enjoying the book. I mean, I, I think it's it's hitting it's hitting a really important note, similar to incontinence, similar to periods, you know, stuff that we just don't talk about. We have a lot of feelings about aging and changing and grief and loss, and I think if we don't address all of these notions around it, we can't even get to what the particular issue for the particular person across the table from me is, let alone what a solution might be. And I, again, I think for me, it's always been about framing everything in a big picture way and making room for that person to be who they are. I I don't, it's, you know, 26 years into my career, a lot of times I'm not always aware of what I'm doing, you know, because I'm just doing it 25 times a day. Right. But I think what's really going on here is that I bring who I am into every encounter. And I think that that helps my patients a lot. I'm not doing it as a strategy. That's just who I am. And I feel really strongly and passionately about 
hearing people's stories and assisting them and, and on their healing journey, like I've done with myself and like I have gotten help for myself. So I think setting the stage that way by just being me allows people to be them. And then also I'm very specific in questions because we know just like this incontinence data, very similar with a lot of other health issues. If we don't ask specific questions, if I don't ask you about your sex life or, you know, if I don't ask you about, are you leaking? If I don't ask you about pain, a lot of times people are not going to volunteer that information. At this point in my career, I'm known for integrative medicine. I've known for menopause care. So people are coming in with a list. And by the way, they've seen multiple uh, practitioners a lot of times by the time they get to me. So there's a lot of frustration and disappointment in the system, quote unquote. But even prior to that, like I'm aware every time I meet somebody, you know, to ask these questions and make sure that those, those, whatever their issue is, is getting addressed. So we can do a deeper dive into, okay, what's, the, what are the most disruptive things for you? Okay. You're, you're having night sweats, which is disrupting your sleep and you're in a crappy mood. Okay. So how can we unpack that and, you know, get to the, the top one or two concerns, unwind that, start working on solutions over time. And then, you know, move through all of it. Cause there's no way I'm going to do it all in five minutes or 20 minutes. Um, and I, I really make a pact with my patients. Okay. We're going to do this together, which means you've got to, you've got to talk to me. You've got to tell me what's going on and I'm going to make you come back. You know, I, you know, a lot of times some people are like, like squarely in it and things are really changing. Let's say that's, you know, typically mid to late forties, their period starts to change or their mood, like their PMS gets wild. Now this is where I'm like, okay, I want to see you every six months or three months because I want to check in. Cause it's a, it's also a moving target, Juliana. Like, you know, it's a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole for a couple of years there. And we know that quote perimenopause, the time around menopause. So this gets people confused too. Menopause is 12 months consecutively without a menstrual cycle in a woman who doesn't have any other reason why that might happen. Okay. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. So menopause and postmenopause get confused. You don't know you're in menopause until it's done. So it's the two to 10 years leading up to that, that really is very challenging for people. And that's when I see people coming in with a lot of concerns, complaints, disruption, fear, anxiety, sadness, worry. And that's where I can sort of, like I said, hone in. What are the most disruptive things for you and how can we address those you know, now and over time and, and really, um, explaining to people like, this isn't going to be a one and done, Like you're not going to come in and like, okay, bye all better. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is a process of humility for them too, of like just really surrendering and, and letting go and looking at what, what can they do over time and not for me, it's been a, a really interesting experience of just letting go of perfectionism, like that's just not how it works. What are a few things that you would tell your patients? Like specifically, like I know you can't give specific advice, but like what are some examples of things you would tell your patients to do to ameliorate or at least attenuate some of these, these experiences, the, the symptoms going through this process? Yeah, I know. I'm being like generic because there's so many. You know, and you see these listicles online, the 34 symptoms of, right. you know, I'm like, oh my God, please. I, I mean... So here, I'm going to, I sort of touched on them. The, the things that I get the most that pe really bother people are the hot flashes and night sweats, the sleep disruption, 
Um, and then the resulting issues from that brain fog, mood problems, uh, like I said, people's PMS, both physically and mood wise, rage gets wild and then vaginal dryness and, um, you know, subsequent like urinary issues because they're related to vaginal dryness from estrogen changes and sexual complaints. So that those are sort of the, the biggest problems I have. How we address it depends on who the person is. Okay. So I'm going to talk about myself, right? I'm actually still, believe it or not, in perimenopause. <laughs> well, we'll see. I don't know. The countdown has begun again for me. And anybody who's, who's in it or done this knows that they're like, I got to 70 days and then I got a period or I got, I mean, I had somebody come in last year saying that they got to like 360 days. <laughs> oh, you're it's funny. It's not funny. It's funny, but it's not funny. You're like, Oh God. You know, because at that point, you're just like, please, can we be done? So I'll tell you what, I have very specific issues. I'm a breast cancer survivor, so I can't oh, wow. use systemic hormones, right? So estrogen loss and changes in the ratios between estrogen and progesterone during the cycle are really what creates a lot of the problems for people. I'm really simplifying it here, okay? Um, hot flashes are really wonderfully addressed by estrogen therapy, for instance, that's not available to me. So I have like a, you know, I have my, my, uh, herbs that I love. Black cohosh is one of them. Pycnogenol is another one. Um, if I can get my hot flashes under control and those are waking me up, my sleep may get restored. Sleep, I'm not going to lie, is one of the hardest things because people just wake up. And we know that those are from hormonal changes that all aging humans have and decreases in things like vasopressin, which allow us to literally hold our urine overnight. Um, you know, men and women all complain about waking up at three in the morning to pee, and then you're up. But if you can then do some lifestyle modification, like if you wake up, keep the lights off. Don't engage in anything. Do not look at your phone. Don't look at what time it is. You know, make sure you have really good sleep hygiene. Like you got to really be on it. Maybe when you were 35, you could fall asleep in a party and sleep seven hours. But, you know, at 55, that's not happening. So the bedroom is for sleep and sex only, you know, that kind of stuff. Screens are off an hour before you try to go to bed, have some kind of a nighttime ritual. So really like drilling down into these things. Vaginal dryness is a whole thing in and of itself. Um, and I think I do want to mention again that people don't always realize that their urinary health is very much linked to their vaginal health. Um, as we're losing estrogen activity in the vaginal tissue in the vulva, the urethra is right there. And so people get a lot of irritative symptoms and think they're getting bladder infections. Their incontinence may really pick up, not just from the muscles, but because the tissue is responding differently. And so vaginal estrogen, which is safe for anybody, including someone like me, because it's not absorbed into your whole body, that can be a game changer for people. So there's a lot of stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of, of looking more at cannabis-based products for vaginal and sexual health. I mean, that's a wild west. There's not enough data on it. But again, if we're minimizing absorption into your whole body and targeting tissues, there can I've seen um, anecdotal evidence that is very promising. So these are some of the specific ways, and these are this is a this is a great example of my use of integrative medicine, right? I'm not just uh, here's the script. Bye. Right. You know, not that there's anything wrong with a script, oh, but it's no. not always the only way to do it. I love that. You know, and it's interesting because women's women are not studied as much, even close as men yeah. in research. Yeah. 
And, you know, women's health is specialized. We have completely different systems in play. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of, it's a major disadvantage. And so what are some of the most important issues in women's health that you would like more people to know about? I mean, you've said some of them, but like, what are some signs, symptoms women may have and not know that they could actually approach their physician or their integrative practitioner about to get help? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people do not realize that the FDA did not even require women be a part of clinical trials of all medications until 1993. Okay. That I was in medical school at that time. That is insanity. And so if people think that the nearly 30 years is enough to have data that is strong <laughs> and robust for women taking medications that all humans should be aware about, like safety, efficacy, dosing, 30 years is not that long. It really isn't that long. So it's pretty shocking when you put it into those terms. I think it speaks again to, I mean, that right there is just some crazy age, uh, sexism and misogyny. And I mean, it, it, people, it's very much baked into a lot of our systems. That doesn't mean we can't do anything about it, right? I think if we come in to any encounter about anything with a lack of stigma and shame, and we partner with doctors, practitioners who also share that perspective, then we can work together to figure things out. Like you don't have to know everything. And by the way, your doctor doesn't have to know everything. I've been very open with my patients my whole career about like, hey, I don't know the answer to that. Let's research it. Now it's very easy. I literally get on Google <laughs> and I go, you know, I know where is a, a reliable source. I, I, I'm going to read the data differently than maybe the average person. But not knowing everything is not a thing. That, that's uh, that's going to create more problems. So getting rid of shame and stigma, which is why the whole like incontinence conversation is important because that's a really good touchstone for like talk about embarrassing. No, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Then we can dig into other things. I'll tell you what's really on my mind right now is uh, cardiac health. The number one killer of women, the number one killer of all humans is is heart disease. And I think people, I get people in my office all the time say, like going through their family history and I make them go through their family history with me. Even though they filled out the forms, I make them talk to me about it. Inevitably, somebody will say, well, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so had heart failure, diabetes, kidney, blah, 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 but they had this lifestyle. And it is not to say that lifestyle is not powerful, but it's not the only thing. And I think women fail to understand that their risk of heart disease is quite high. And women's heart disease in general, as you mentioned, is very different from men's heart disease. So we're really just starting to look at that more carefully and look at what are the ways in which we can help decrease risk and optimize our healing. I mean, the kind of stuff that you do, the lifestyle stuff is so, 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 so important. But if people don't realize that they may have some genetics involved there and, you know, really seek help before they have a problem, preventive cardiology is something that I'm very interested in. I'm really on a tear about that right now because we're starting to finally unwind a little bit more the data on uh, things like Alzheimer's and dementia, which is two to three times more common in women in menopause than in men of the same age. Okay. Wow. That's crazy. And people uh, like Maria Shriver, Lisa Moscone are really highlighting that research and, and funding it and starting to come out. How do women's uh, brains change as we age? Uh, we're starting to really dive in and understand that. So I'd really like to see the cardiology and the heart health uh, 
be looked at the same. We also know osteoporosis is a big issue for women as we age, but we, we have better solutions um, that are more clear and obvious and evidence-based than in, in some of these other areas. So these are the areas that I really, I want people to be aware of, not to be afraid, not to be afraid. Information is power. Knowledge is power. Thank you. Yes, that's what I always say. We're just collecting data. It's so important yes. on top of all this. Things like osteoporosis, how would you even know? Like if you don't, you know, unless you're breaking yeah. something, but like the beginning signs like osteopenia, right. you don't even know to go look for that. And prevention right. is amazing. I'm, I'm dealing with that right now personally with my father again. And it's like, if you just go backwards, if you just, or you just take control right now, there's so much you could do with your lifestyle, you know, genes, yeah. I love the saying that genes may load the gun, but diet and lifestyle pull the trigger. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I, this, this is kind of an awkward segue, but I was reading the book <laughs> and it just resonated with me because I too, you talk about, well, you opened the book about gray hair, this great story about mm-hmm. letting your hair go gray. I want to talk about that, but you also talk about aging and practicing medicine in Beverly Hills. Now, I too have grown up here and it's, you call it the ground zero, absolutely <laughs> insane notion that only women who are young are worthy of our attention and attraction. And, you know, it's real. I mean, obviously it's not, this is not as significant as the, the issues that are that we were just talking about, but, you know, mentally or psychologically, emotionally, it is challenging to be a woman that's aging. What do you recommend to women for managing these expectations? Well, you know, it's really, it's the theme of your whole podcast, right? Choose you now. I mean, you know, I think what you have to do is you, you have to be courageous. You do, but there's more and more people out there doing them. And I think when you, when you embrace and accept yourself, you're going to be free of a lot of the things that you think people are thinking about you. So it's complicated. But people are thinking about themselves. <laughs> not really thinking about you that much. And if they are, then those probably aren't your people. You know what I mean? Unless it's like thinking about you in a loving way. <laughs> That's what I tell people about going to the gym. It's like, you know, everyone's always worried that people are looking Ugh. at the gym. I'm like, no one's even paying attention. They're all just focusing on themselves. Exactly. Exactly. I think the problem. I don't want to dismiss it because having grown up here and being of a certain age and growing up with different expectations than I think some of, you know, some of your listeners who maybe are younger are, you know, we have to unwind like, you know, our entire narrative that we adopted from the culture, which is what I said. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not that black and white, but it does affect you. And it, I mean, even me, I'm like a pretty empowered person. And listen, I didn't choose a career where my looks were what was important about me. I chose a career where my brain was important. You know what I'm saying? So I'm subjected to it way less than other people. And I understand that people are affected by this differently. But I think just understanding that that notion is, you know, my, my boyfriend says this all the time, like that's the programming. And you, you don't, you don't have to accept that programming. You can actually read a different book. You need to have people around you who are going to support you. You need to be able to ask questions of professionals who can help you through it. It's not, I don't think to me, community is super, super important. And and you probably haven't gotten this far in the book, but my book really addresses that. And and the book, by the way, came from menopause boot camps. I was, I was holding, I'm doing one actually this weekend um, in person where I was like doing 
uh, a long form educational, but communal experience. And, you know, the truth is people came for the information, but they left with community. That is really key. And I think these are the things that have helped me get through it, you know, and, and accept myself. And then I get to help other people through it. You know, I'm, I'm bringing, I'm lending my hand to somebody else who, who then is like, oh, she did that and she seems to be okay. Maybe she would help me. Of course I would help you. That's the other thing that's really opened up to me is like realizing that there are a lot of people out there who do want to be in community, who do want to work together to uh, make things better for us, you know, as individuals and as a society. And everybody isn't a competitor, you know, and the people who feel that way are like, fine, cool. You should be over there doing your thing. It's not my thing. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I feel like I kind of am. <laughs> I went off a little bit there. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, Suzanne, how do you personally choose yourself? How do you choose you now? Oh, it's, it's, that's a daily practice because, you know, I feel like for a number of reasons, I'm, I tend my default can be outwardly focused and, and there are some great things about that, but I have to be careful to not abandon myself in doing that. And, um, my daily practices are everything. So I get up extra early actually. So I no longer attend births. That's new. And that really dominated my life, you know, because my life was literally all about everybody else waking up at three in the morning, running around like a maniac, not necessarily eating right, not necessarily sleeping, not getting to meditate. I get up extra early now, even if I'm not going to be in the operating room to have lots of time in the morning to connect with myself, to slowly wake up, to meditate, to be, I go outside every morning, um, and put my you know feet in the earth, just like connect with being here, being present. That's probably the most important thing I do, but also exercising is super, super important to me. My ability to be strong and stay strong and feel good in my body and feel proud of what my body can do is extremely important for me physically and emotionally and spiritually. I'm a long time meditation and yoga person. Those are spiritual practices for me. Um, my partner and I have an incredible garden that actually really took off during the pandemic and we grow everything from fruits and vegetables to medicinal plants. So these are all things that really feed me personally. Um, and, and really, you know, the older I get, the more I say no. <laughs> like, I don't have to do everything. That's such a good one. Yes. That's a very powerful word. I like that. I don't remember who said it, but no is a complete sentence. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Who I'm quoting. I'm sorry for, I, I have to look that up. But thank you so much, Dr. Suzanne, for this very important conversation. I love the hashtag my evolving body. It's really an important conversation. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us today. Oh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It was great talking to you. I love the idea of my evolving body and growing older gracefully for what that's worth. It's all about shining a light on anything that feels embarrassing or uncomfortable because once it's out there, you can actually start the healing process. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, become a member of our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com slash choose you now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash choose you now to have access to exclusive content. 
please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with your questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.